many of my guests have talked about tuning into and pursuing your passion when considering career options. In this episode, I talked with Mariana Vargas Caballero about how she discovered her passion for science and about the choices and principles that brought her into the academic life. I remember working through a really fun, really nice book called Build Your Own Rainbow. And it had so many nice exercises that allowed me to reflect. For example, it had one about drawing your lifeline and thinking at which points in your life you have felt the most accomplished, stressed, happy, and so on. And also kind of doing mind maps of your life and career and seeing patterns of what makes you satisfied, dissatisfied, and so on. So together with that, I realized that, you know, I value knowledge and understanding in, in, as a part of my job. And so I knew I really, really wanted that. And at the same time, I wanted to have, you know, discovery, understanding, and this communication with the new generations. So that kind of put it all in perspective for me. And I said, I know that it's going to be very hard, but I believe that an academic job is going to be right for me. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. Welcome to this week's episode of Papa PhD. This week I have with me Dr. Mariana Vargas Caballero. Mariana is a Mexican-British neuroscientist. She obtained a degree in biology in Mexico. She then trained for a PhD in neuroscience at the University of Cambridge. With fellowship funding from Wellcome Trust, she obtained postdoctoral training at the University of California at Berkeley, the University of Toronto, and the University of Oxford. In 2012, Mariana established her independent research group at the University of Southampton, where she's a lecturer in neuroscience. Her research interests focus on understanding how brain circuits are affected by dementia. Welcome to Papa VHD, Mariana. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. It's a real privilege to be here. I believe that we need more voices from academia to tell our stories. And the more diverse, the better. So in a way, also, this feels a bit like a celebration for me, looking back, reflecting all the challenges that I have overcome. So it's, I'm really excited about our conversation. Yeah, I'm really excited too. We've talked uh, you know, before before the the actual recording and I, I really like your story and um, I, I, I really like also to have you uh, as, as, as someone who's still in academia talking about how, you know, how w what uh, different um, uh, factors affected your journey throughout, brought you to where you are today and then also to look at your interaction with students today because in a way papa phd uh, when i you know when i do the podcast i always envision someone that i'm talking to and it, it's students it's phd phd researchers so um i i'm i think and i hope that we'll be able to also talk a little bit of what you went through and maybe what you're seeing today uh in the students you interact with so yeah 
welcome. Uh, really happy to have you here. And to begin, um, I, I think it's it's only natural to start by the beginning <laughs> and to talk about your your academic journey, how it started, maybe what motivated it, and uh, and then uh, we'll talk about the different things that happened along the way that I feel uh, that I feel the audience will really appreciate learning. Absolutely. So in terms of how it all started, I would say that I fell in love with natural sciences from when I was like eight, nine, ten years old. And I loved everything to do with uh, the way that plants, animals, organism worked. And I remember looking through the microscope for the first time, they had asked us to go to a graveyard and get some of the dirty oh water from <laughs> dirty water okay. from the you know from the flowers that people leave so that we could bring yeah. some really good microorganisms and i just <laughs> fell in love with cells from that moment <laughs> so <laughs> i um i kept studying and then in one visit that we did from my university to the national university of mexico I visited the Institute for Cellular Physiology, and for the first time, I heard a lot about neurons, ultrastructure, electrophysiology, all of those concepts just blew my mind, and I knew mm -hmm. first that I wanted to do my final year project on a neuroscience topic, and then I knew I wanted to do a PhD and stay in academia. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, so... How was that process? Did you go through a master's first? Uh, yes, I did. So I did my... In Mexico, your undergraduate is about four and a half years. Then you need to do a project, which is very long, and it's of undefined length, at least mm -hmm. back then that's how it was. And that's not very helpful because it really is up to your supervisor to decide when it's finished. <laughs> But um, <laughs> so I, I did my project and... After that, I applied to the University of Cambridge originally with a one-year scholarship that I won, and that was a master. And once I okay. was at the university, I gained another scholarship to have the rest of the time for a PhD. Okay, okay. It's uh, the structure that you mentioned resembles what uh, what it was in Portugal when I did my bachelor's. It was five years, and in the last year, I also had a project, and uh, and now it's actually they made it equivalent to a to a master's. Uh, there was uh, this this Bologna agreement that me that for anyone who was in that structure, uh, you know, gained this equivalency to a master's degree. Yeah. Uh, it's Interesting. Uh, two sides of the of the pond and the same uh, the same model. Yeah, similar <laughs> structure. I, I I like that concept because it it I think it gives that value to the to the experimental work, the hands on science, and you know to earn that personal masters is is quite positive. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the fact of having a, a final project or the fact of doing a masters before a PhD may help you understand whether you like research at all, whether you fit, you know it's something that the, the 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 whole process of research is something that you like and it may help you in decide if you want to take the step into a PhD, I believe. Exactly. And you go in with a lot more information. So um from so you got you got you went to Cambridge. Uh so this was a huge change for you. Uh I imagine uh, a culture clash I imagine also. Can you talk a little bit about how it was to you know look at your colleagues, you got your family and say, "Hey, I'm going to Europe. 
Uh, I'm going to a great place. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's a great opportunity, but it's far, far away. <laughs> yes. No, it, it was quite shocking. But what, what I remember was a day in which after a lecture, one of my lecturers called me to her office and said, have you considered going to Cambridge? She had been in Cambridge herself. And that okay. really shocked me because I, I knew I wanted to do a postgraduate degree abroad. And mm -hmm. when she said Cambridge, I thought, really? That really is a big, big shot. But because she had mm -hmm. that experience, she had seen it and she had seen my work. Um, and she said, I can give you a very good reference letter. So I started, you know, I set everything in motion. And that day when I told my family, they, they seemed really shocked that I wanted to do <laughs> that. <laughs> But, you know, my family has always supported me. And... Um, After, you know, some months down the line, I was there in the airport and everybody was extremely supportive. I did feel, you know, that, that I was leaving everything I had. But once I got to the UK, it was so much fun. It was so nice. Everybody was very welcoming and also quite diverse. I was always thinking that, you know, I, I'm going to be surrounded by people speaking English. But it turned out that in my lab, everybody was speaking German. <laughs> So, oh wow! <laughs> so it was just really multicultural, and I made friends really, really quickly. It was wonderful. And um, so, uh, apparently, from what I understand, uh, people were very welcoming uh, when you arrived. Uh, was that was was there any sort of uh, adjustment? You know, even though your colleagues uh, and and the lab environment was very uh, in inviting and welcoming, like you said. Uh, what about the the other aspects of being in a new country, different food, uh, different you know habits? Uh, uh, how was uh, how was the, the this experience of you know teletransport yourself into a, quite a, a different you know daily reality? Yes, I, I, when I look back, I always remember those times with so much. I, I felt so accomplished and so happy. I remember mm -hmm. thinking, you know, when I just left Mexico, I had really no money whatsoever. I had to mm -hmm. borrow money to pay for my English exams and things like that. So when I suddenly was in England and I had my accommodation and I had my payment, I think I'm, I'm being paid for studying. And, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I felt safe. I was, you know, back then there was no Skype or Zoom. And so I was in touch with my family via Telephone calls, which were extremely expensive, or letters. My mom used to write me letters. So, oh, wow. um, but all of that just felt so complete. It was all happy. I, I don't seem, and of course, I missed my family, etc. But those moments of interaction when we had telephone calls and so on just just made it all very good. And because I, mm -hmm. I formed a really good support bubble in the UK when uh, when I got there, you know, they have this system with the colleges where you have, um, okay. so you have your accommodation, your college, and you meet people who are outside your lab instantly. And so they kind of okay. give you that bubble of independent from your day-to-day -day lab work. And it was, it was good. Sounds like a really good system. And I, I do agree that 
and I mention it a lot. You know, listeners and or people who follow me, they 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 they've heard about it a lot. The importance of having a community outside of of your research and outside of your lab, and it seems that 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 the the college structure made it happen organically. So so that I, I'm really curious. I, I've never been, uh, and I, I, you know, I've never experienced that uh, and and that that model. But it seems from what you're saying that it was really really helpful. Yeah. Now. Uh, you know, going through your PhD, uh, how did things go? And uh, you know, you're now uh, a professor. Uh, how, you know, how did the PhD go? And how did you, let's say, uh, align yourself and project yourself into the future as you were going, you know, year by year uh, through your PhD? Yes. So my PhD went well. It- Something to to mention is that I did have a bit of stress throughout because I was supposed to do a set of experiments that were very challenging challenging technically, and so mm-hmm. I had to you know it, it was all very intricate, very challenging, and I went for months and months without results and so that really kind of built up certain stress, but I remember my supervisor always had a really good outlook on everything. I remember one day when he said something that made everybody laugh in the lab. And he said, well, your exam is coming up and you only have, you know, one, one set of results. Should we start simulating something? Should we start some simulations <laughs> so that you have some, <laughs> some more data? And we all laughed, but, and we did. We simulated some stuff. But that also gave me a new set of skills, which was, you know, use MATLAB, use these models mm-hmm. of neurons to, to build um, that type of simulations. And so in the end, then my, my PhD continued and the acquisition of data was extremely slow. Uh, however, it did, it did give me in the end a set of results that added something new to the field and therefore it allowed me to gain a PhD. Mm. And so you mentioned hitting some difficulty in, in getting data out and in making things work at a certain pace and i uh, from what i know in england it's the time to do a phd is quite short three years i don't know if it was the case for you yes so when i first got to cambridge i had a one year for the masters and my project kind of evolved yes. into the into the phd so i would say that in total for you know those that set of discoveries i had four years so that was a bit of an advantage, but even if you look at four years, it's still not the the five or six or seven that you get in, in the US. It's very limited okay. by the funding. So you just get the funding for that period of time. And if you have no means to continue, then you need to make sure that you finish with it within that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, I, I understand. And but where and where I where I was going with this was Knowing that you had this limited time, seeing that things were not maybe going at the, the speed that you would have liked, uh, you know, what was the main attitude or principle that, uh, that that kind of helped you day by day, you know, keep going at it and and make sure that you you know you were building the, that project brick by brick and then you know and and getting to the finished product. Yes. So. I think that one strategy that I use nowadays, and I, I use it quite consciously, is you know to break big problems into smaller ones. And back then I did it a bit more organically, or, or probably that's what my supervisor was, you know, feeding me one problem at a time. Um, mm-hmm. And so I first conquered some some problems, 
and they looked really difficult at the time. But once we sorted them, then we were able to go to the more difficult ones and so on. And towards the end of my PhD, I was doing some experiments that were technically challenging, extremely technically challenging, um, but they were successful and they demonstrated the, the principle that we were after. Mm. And now thinking of what came next. So you ended up getting your data, you know, doing your defense and getting your PhD, like you said. Uh, tell us just about yeah, what were the next steps? What were the, the questions that you asked yourself about going, you know, what was what path you were going to follow into into the, the academic career, let's say. Yes. So at the beginning, when I first finished my PhD, I wanted to get, to, to travel again. So uh, during my PhD, I met my my boyfriend, now husband, who had gone, who, who wanted to go to, to do a PhD to Toronto. And so I applied okay. in various places and I gained a um, fellowship to go to, California and then Toronto. At okay. That first step that I took from PhD to postdoc was a bit more kind of automatic. I knew I had to do a postdoc. It was kind of, yeah, this is what I need to do next without giving it that thought or what, what is this leading me into right now? But when mm -hmm. I, once I was in that process of working in California, Toronto, two years into it, I started to question, is this really what I want? I, uh, I'm going on to this academic path. Do I want to continue with it? And I was very aware of how highly competitive academia is. So now we know that, you know, one in 20 PhD students is going to get a tenure track position and one in 200 is going to get a full professorship. So I, I, I saw this as a very, very challenging job prospect that I, I was aiming at. Mm. However, in those, in that time, especially once I was in Toronto and I had uh, reunited with my other half, I took that time to reflect. And I remember working through a really fun, really nice book called Build Your Own Rainbow. And it had so many nice exercises that allowed me to reflect. For example, it had one about drawing your lifeline and thinking at which points in your life you have felt the most accomplished, stressed, happy, and so on. And also kind of doing mind maps of your life and career and seeing patterns of what makes you satisfied, dissatisfied, and so on. So together with that, I realized that, you know, I value knowledge and understanding in, in, as a part of my job. And so I knew mm -hmm. I really, really wanted that. And at the same time, I wanted to have, you know, discovery, understanding, and this communication with the new generations. So even though that kind of put it all in perspective for me, and I said, I know that it's going to be very hard, but I believe that an academic job is going to be right for me. So mm -hmm. I'm going to give it my all. I'm going to go for it. And I'm aware that if I'm not one of those people who gets that tenure track position, then I can do something else. I have skills and I can use them for something else. But for now, this is plan A and I'm just going to go for it full on. And I did that. So I kept going and then I applied for, for you know, the following fellowship when the time came. Mm. That sounds really interesting because one of the key things uh, when we talk about 
figuring out your career path and taking decisions like this uh, is introspection, kind of a self-inquiry. And it looks like naturally you gravitated, you gravitated towards that. You found this book and you did the work and, and you actually ended up with an answer, which a lot of us might not you know either have anyone suggest this book to us or uh, or, or a book or a seminar or something that kind of opens that window and and makes us start to think look look inside and think okay let's take a pause you know my experiments are you know i'll pick them up tomorrow but today i'm going to look at me what are my strengths what are my you know my strong suits what what are uh, my you know special uh, <laughs> special uh um, um, skills that are particular to me, do, starting to do all that work uh, of looking at yourself to then be able to project yourself into the future. Uh, and I think it's really interesting that you ended up uh, you ended up on your own, kind of following the right path, which is to first look inside to then see what you can be and what you can aim to be outside. Yep. And so the se- so now you were in Toronto. With your partner, what came next? What came next? After this year in Toronto. Yes. So that was quite an interesting time because we, you know, that's when you start feeling that pressure of where are we going with our careers? And Mm -hmm. that combined with the fixed term contracts, it kind of adds that, you know, we have this upcoming ending of our contract in two years or in three years. And then, you know, you're going to have to be thinking of your next move, not by the end of it, but a year before or sometimes earlier. So we started thinking of many different options. And uh, so my, essentially our philosophy was apply to everything that you would be prepared to accept. And then the more options, the better. So we applied to many, many things. And I think the solution, something that worked really, really well for us was that Uh, we both gained fellowships. Fellowships, at least in the UK, allow you to, because the fellowship is yours, allow you to relocate. And that was the key for us to be able to sort this two-body problem. You know, the the problem Mm -hmm. of having two academics who who both need a job in hopefully the same place. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, I remember at some point we had, offers in two different places but one of them did not involve a fellowship and so it was essentially bound to that place and the other place involved you know two fellowships which meant that eventually we could take that flexibility of relocating one when the time came and so that's how we arrived in oxford Mm. so uh, just a question just so i understand was your partner now done with with his PhD, or or this was was he still still doing his PhD? So he he was done with his PhD. He was kind of one year ahead of me, and so okay. uh, he was also looking for a yeah, for the next stage, like a tenure track or a fellowship or something. Mm-hmm. And so he he gained a fellowship from the Royal Society in the UK, which is uh, five years to start with. And wow. uh, okay. so he it was originally attached to the University of Oxford, but then there is this system that you can extend it, and that's in a way that's what allowed him to come to Southampton eventually with me. That's interesting. And just so again, you know, someone who's 
out there listening and who um, thinks, okay, no, this, you know, doing their postdoc and thinking, oh, I could kind of follow Mariana's path. Can you tell, you know, describe a little bit what type of position you landed? What, you know, when you arrived, what was your, your job uh, in Oxford? In Oxford. So, so in precisely. Oxford, I came back. So when I finished my PhD, I gained a welcome traveling fellowship which allowed me okay. to be in California, Toronto, and then one year back in the UK okay. when I chose Oxford. And once in Oxford, I gained another fellowship again from the Wellcome Trust, which uh, it was called a training Oxion fellowship, which allowed me to gain extra skills. And so they were all, you know, advertised through the normal channels, job AC UK, um, and then when I when when my fellowship in Oxion finished, I was able then to apply for a tenure track that was offered at the University of Southampton. Okay, okay, and that's and that's where you are today. Yeah. When Mariana said this, I found it almost intriguing. It was really interesting that she was mentioning that as a candidate for an academic position at the stage that she was. Getting training on specific skills was key to being the right candidate, fulfilling the requirements to land an academic position. So I asked her to share more details about this training and about what advantage this brought her as a candidate. So you're talking about training and, you know, you're quite skilled coming out of, of you know, the... Of the, 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 the journey that you said and including California including Toronto you know it, it makes me curious but I think also it's going to be useful what were you then focused on learning to prepare yourself to land this position that you had set your mind to yes so the the reality is and it's something that I, I discuss often with my students is to land these positions only enough what you need rather than, well, you need the skills, but you need papers. You need to have demonstrated with publications that you can push those skills to fill in gaps in knowledge. And so mm -hmm. the, the skills that I have are in the area of electrophysiology and mm -hmm. also those extra trainings that I have had have allowed me to, to implement uh, techniques in molecular biology or behavioral analysis to ask questions related to dementia or memory. And so um, essentially it's the combination of those papers and those mm -hmm. skills that I think put me in a really good position when I applied for, for this job, both, both okay. of those things. And you had mentioned uh, off, the, off the mic, uh, spending time, um, uh, some time in a residential course to hone those skills. Can you talk a little bit uh, yes. about that? So absolutely. I think that course was very important for me because I knew about it since I was in my undergraduate project. So it's a course, it is very famous. It's in Woods Hole um, in the USA and it's called Neurobiology and it's essentially two months residential, super intense course uh, researchers from all over the world come and essentially they bring their labs to teach a very small group of students. I think it was like 15 of us techniques, mm -hmm. hands-on 
and they give you lots of lectures, etc. So I always wanted to do this that course, and I found the, the perfect opportunity when I was in in Toronto, about to finish my postdoc there. And what I found is, apart from doing something that I always wanted to do, mm-hmm. I felt that it just solidified like all, all the skills that I already had. I felt as if I was on top of them. My confidence level just raised really, really lots. And I also learned to appreciate that there were aspects that I had no idea about and that I could start to embed myself in them. And I might not be able to master them in the same way because I didn't have another seven years or whatever. But (laughs) I could ask questions and I could find collaborators in order to use those approaches to look at the questions that I wanted to ask in a different angle. And Mm -hmm. for example, I think that has now allowed me to find collaborators and, you know, to, to, to have again that confidence of, of pointing out what gaps we might be able to fill in together. That, that, that's super interesting. And it's funny because I didn't get to the postdoc, but uh, of course, even, even as a postdoc, there's, there's still, things you can learn, things you can get better at that will then make you a better candidate later on. Of course, it, it totally makes sense. I, I just found it really, really interesting. Now, uh, thinking of, uh, you know, thinking of that, that you know, they had that fellowship, uh, I think Oxion is the name that you... Yeah. yeah. Then having that fellowship, what was then... Because I, I, I'm really curious at the, the kind of the hiring process how it how it happens the inter- interviewing can you talk a little bit about how then you had to make a case that you were the person for the position that you ended up getting yes absolutely so that was a really interesting kind of time it's kind of putting the pl- the pieces in the right place at the right time when we first moved from toronto to the uk i remember my husband asking me do you know anybody you know in, in the south coast because i'm being offered a, a lectureship there and I, I was in a position to find a postdoc. So I looked around at the University of Southampton for a postdoc for me, and it didn't quite fit the profile that I could offer. There wasn't a lab that, I, I, that was doing what I wanted to do. And so at the time I said, no, there is nothing. So that's when we went to Oxford. But then at, some years later, four, four years later, when there was this advert that they were calling for five in, interdisciplinary fellowships at the University of Southampton, and you could come mm-hmm. in and start a new group. And that really okay. rang the bell saying, mm-hmm. well, I remember... This is my the, opportunity. <laughs> the, the interests in the university definitely fit what I can do, and I can offer something that is it, it's fitting there, you know, electrophysiology in, in brain. Um, mm-hmm. And then... I applied. The only thing there at the moment is when I saw that advert, I was about 25 weeks pregnant. And so okay. uh, with my second child. And so I thought, you know, I could have taken the, the option and said, well, at the interview time, I'm going to be 32 weeks and I won't be able to take the job. But I made a phone call <laughs> and I spoke with one of the senior academics and the, the person said, you know, apply. You don't lose anything by applying. I'm aware of what you are saying. Just apply. And I got invited for an interview. And in fact, the interview was when I was 32 weeks pregnant. And when they <laughs> asked me, you know, they were asking this question to all the candidates. They asked me, so if we offered you the job today, would you take it? 
And so oh, wow. I was very upfront and I said, well, for obvious reasons, I couldn't take it <laughs> starting straight away. <laughs> but uh, all in all, would you be prepared to wait for me for a year? Because I would have to take my maternity leave and then I need to be back in Oxford for three months. But the nice thing is that my husband is, is also being offered a job in the area. So we are planning to make a, a move here. And okay. I would be delighted to take it if that was the case. And so they offered it to me. So if okay, wow. the one thing that I can, you know, pass on to the new generations there is don't, don't let that stop you. Don't, don't let being pregnant or having plans or anything like that stop you from making these applications because you never mm-hmm. know. Yeah. And in your case, the feeling I get is this was a really great fit for you and you were a really great fit for the position. So it would have been yeah. a pity to, to miss that opportunity because of this. So you were just upfront. You said things as they were and they said, you know what? We'll wait for you. Yeah. That's, what, that's what happened. That's <laughs> yeah. awesome. And also I think because they were, it was like a strategic move in which they were hiring five people. They were all going to have slightly different schedules. I think that having okay. one person that was starting a little bit later, it, it was not a big deal. And so it, it, it was one of those situations where everything just aligns perfectly, but you need to have the right skills and, and the right mindset for that. And then uh, w- once you, you, uh, you, you, had your, you had your child, one year later, you get to the position. What's the, what was the position? Again, just so people can, can kind of uh, understand what the path exactly was. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I have a follow-up question to yeah. that. What was the position that you got when you arrived? Yeah. So the, the position, uh, it, it was quite unique for the UK because in the UK, normally you don't get these tenure track positions, but that's what it was. Essentially, mm-hmm. I was going to have... Um, the first couple of years are very light on teaching. Then it was going to build up so that eventually by the end of the five years, I would be a member, you know, a full member of academic staff that would have a balanced mm-hmm. pathway of 40% research, 40% teaching and 20% admin. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, so it, it was, I had some lab space given to me the first year. It was uh, very much applying for, for funding. And then mm-hmm. later on, it was, you know, having to give some lectures or taking students and so on. So it, it, it got, you know, that, that academic workload that everybody is, is mm-hmm. a bit more used to. And so my follow-up question is, uh, now it's kind of the dream kind of comes through at this moment, right? Yeah. You, you got <laughs> the position that you had aimed for for a huge chunk of your life. Uh was there any fear was there any uh, anxiety of you know you know being you know mariana now in this new place with uh, new colleagues around you some get, some arrived earlier some have been in, have, have been here for a while and now i'm i'm a, i'm a, a professor uh, how was that transition into this new reality into the kind of the crystallization of all these years of work of planning and uh, and of of, uh, of you know envisioning something i think for me the biggest transition in has been kind of in terms of the mindset of what the academic job is so you know when you are dreaming of your i want to be an academic i want to be a researcher of course the dream is i want to have a hundred percent of time to research in my <laughs> lab that is going to be super well funded with a big group of people <laughs> now the reality is and that took me a while to process but i now embrace it fully is that 
the, your academic job at the university is funded because of the undergraduate students, because of the master's mm -hmm. students. Mm -hmm. So you have, um, you, have to, you have to respond to that and you're going to have quite a heavy workload in teaching and in you know, tutoring and so on. And that workload is going to be quite heavy during term time. And then outside that, then you need to do your research and so on. And when you want to fit as much research that you want to do in that very compressed time, you then uh, you, you can hit a wall and say, I cannot possibly fit all of, all of that. I can't. And mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm. it can get a bit stressful. I, I did have a little bit of a you know, an anxiety episode about a few years ago. But I overcame that simply by, you know, allocating my time and, and essentially just trying to be more realistic with I, what I can accomplish. And especially with the fact, you know, when you are a parent, you cannot expect to be a, a super productive parent when you have a teething toddler. <laughs> But things get better and, you know, children get more independent and so on. And you get more efficient with your time. You, you tend to um, prioritize the things that are part of the job, essential to the job, and then next, the things that are important to you. So for me, it was that transition mindset of, you know, perfect academic job with 100% of time in the lab <laughs> to a more realistic, what, the, what really what the job is. Mm -hmm. And... Uh... Another question that I have, because you know, clearly you you know you've moved uh, continents, you've moved countries, uh, and then and then you, you know, you've been moving, and all the all uh, during that time you've been developing research. It's it's you know it's been a lot of work get to where you are today. And one thing I haven't we haven't mentioned still during this conversation is in all of these uh, changes, uh, degrees, uh, different stages. How and now you even in in your current position you kind of alluded to it in the in the last minute but what's what are your go to strategies to maintain work life balance and what have they been you know maybe thinking of during the PhD later on in the postdoc and today yes so the work life balance so one strategy that I think back back in the PhD days I learned it from my then boyfriend and now husband and and we 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 keep we keep that is essentially to set some boundaries in terms of when to work especially so more important now in lockdown because the where is a little bit yeah. blurry so you know for example <laughs> definitely it's not that it's an absolute no to work on the weekends but to have to have a kind of a um rule that Weekends are not for working. Weekends are to catch up with life, to you know, to to enjoy, to do things for yourself, and then to to keep the working week as a working week. Of course, if there are deadlines, if there are things that come up, of course we're going to use the weekends. But in a in a normal routine way to keep that. So my weekends are a kind of sacred, and I really do decompress. I really like them, and and I enjoy them. The other thing now having a family, etc. I think it's essential to keep a 50-50 share balance with partners. 
at home. Of course. And, you know, I, I say this, I feel really fortunate that that's my case, but it's a bit sad to, to have to feel fortunate because, you know, the, it, it really should be the reality, but it, it's not for many people. So um, I think that that makes a massive difference to, to know that, you know, one day is your turn, the next day is the return. And it's not like every single thing is divided half and half. We all have the things that we prefer, but on average, mm-hmm. we, we definitely have shared, share all of the activities 50%. And and also, I think it's worth mentioning again that awareness that the productivity is not going to be the same all the time. To allow that to vary over, you know, different life, different life situations. And um, uh, another thing that uh, that I we haven't talked about and that I'm curious about is, you know, you. You go from being a master's to a PhD, uh, then you go from being a PhD to a postdoc, then uh, you know from a postdoc to a, a lecturer. And at these transitions, were there some fears that you might have of you know performing well, or you know were, were, were there some anxiety in the transitions? And if there were, how did you deal with the, with it? Yes, so I think that in in all of those transitions, there is always a little bit of imposter syndrome. So the imposter syndrome is, you know, it can creep up at any time, but mm-hmm. especially it's in those transitions that you feel that. And so for me, the imposter syndrome, you know, that feeling of, of that there is something defective or that there is something weak, uh, that something is mm-hmm. going to find you out. So there has been for me two really important dimensions to overcome it. And the first one is quite simple. It, it comes from a very simple phrase, but it's really profound. And it's that thing about don't take it personal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when, when something is, is not, when you feel that something is not quite right in the way you are performing, to essentially just separ- separate that personal area from academia and to recognize that, you know, your worth as a human being is not conditional on any of these. So it's not conditional mm-hmm. on your papers or grants or validation from anyone. So that, that for me is so powerful to say, okay, this does not define me. So once I remove that fog and I say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm okay, then I can go quite pragmatic, quite practical and say, okay, so is there a weakness on, on my skills or on my knowledge? And where is it? Let's find it. So, for example, mm-hmm. something that, uh, that it felt quite strongly when I was writing up my PhD, I felt, you know, that my writing was really not very good. And mm. it's not surprising. It was not on my first language. And I think I never had practice of writing such a long piece of work and that kind of followed me a little bit, but then what, what I, I did more or less this, and I said, okay, I have a weakness in writing. And so I took courses, I had lots of feedback, I've been writing a lot, which you know, is the best way to, to learn anything. <laughs> and now I feel quite confident with my writing. And it's more about, mm-hmm. you know, what do I write about is now the question as opposed to can <laughs> I write? And that's how I have approached whenever I feel that there is a weakness then I go and address that weakness. I get the training. And as I mentioned earlier, if it's something that is so big that I just cannot conquer it in, 
you know, a few months or, or with dedication, then I collaborate and then mm-hmm, I can yeah. access all of that, you know, knowledge and expertise by communicating with a collaborator and putting my own expertise on the table. So for me, yes, the imposter syndrome has those two dimensions. And one is, you know, to, to recognize that you are a valuable human being, no matter what. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, find, find what the weakness is in the actual performance at, at, the, at work. Athletes do it all the time, yeah. right? <laughs> exactly. So uh, I totally, I really love that image. Uh, Mariana, we're, we're sadly reaching the end of the interview, but I'm, I'm really enjoying such a, it's a very, a very, I want to say a very human story that you told, you know, of, of going somewhere, you, you know, where the language is not your first language, uh, finding your way through uh learning learning the ropes uh, getting funding to then f- follow your partner uh to to uh, the other the other side of the pond uh coming back i i i think that so much that that the listeners will be able uh, to to take inspiration from i'm really really enjoying this conversation me too thank you but the, the where i wanted to go is you now uh, have students with whom you work and uh, they might be going through things that are are similar to what you went through, but we're in a different you know different world today. It's it's uh, you know twenty twenty one is at the door. It's is almost coming. Uh, can you quickly uh, looking at what you've just told me of the story you've just told me and thinking of your interactions with your students? Uh, can you uh, tell me what you what you're getting from them? You know, uh, having the pulse on on uh, how they, they lives go, the problems they go through, be it personal or or just uh, academic. Can you kind of draw some parallels or maybe, yeah, draw some parallels between what students, or, uh, and I'm thinking of PhD researchers specifically, might be going through and then think of some advice to, to help to help them in the current reality and also in the current reality of the job market for them. Yes. Well, that, that's quite a complex question. But what I would say is what I observe. So I think I'm very lucky because, uh, for example, if I look at my group right now, my PhD students are really brilliant. I learn a lot from them. They inspire me. They are very dedicated. You know, they really work for for what they want. Now, what we always discuss, you know, in lab meetings and in journal clubs is that it is absolutely fine to always ask questions, to not be mm-hmm. afraid of asking even what might sound as a stupid question. And then also to, to be able to recognize when they don't know something, that is not fine. They, is, they are not obliged to know it unless it's you know, their own PhD. But to, to, to allow themselves to, to say, I don't know, but to then go find that information. And something that I, I was saying to a group of, of new PhD students in, in the department, I so I printed this really big red L that you see in cars here when people are learning to take driving lessons. So I that was to remind myself to tell them that when you hear, you know, a podcast or when you go to a workshop or when you read a book, you're having all this information overload. And you are having you are finding out facts and things that of ways that you could approach your work 
But the, re- the reality is that that is kind of a training in progress. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's you who has to go out there and, you know, face the world. So imagine as if this podcast was a driving lesson mm-hmm. or that book you are reading is a driving lesson or that workshop you went to is a driving lesson. But the reality is when you are out there, you know, in the motorways of life <laughs> and in the, in the busy roads of, uh, of rush hour, you will need to, to use all of those skills that you know, sometimes in, in moments that you just need to take quick decisions uh, because it's just with practice that you are going to develop your own work ethic, your own way of behaving in the, in the uh, job market. So take everything in, but then go and do things, go and face the world and, and you know, live, live your dreams, mm-hmm. essentially. And uh, just a question, uh, where you are in Southampton, is there also this thing of colleges or how are your students uh, like socializing and uh, how do you know, did you see them getting involved in maybe, you know, clubs uh, on campus or w- what's the parallel between what you experienced when you were in Cambridge? Yeah. So I guess a parallel would be the clubs and societies. Okay. So the University of Southampton has I can't remember, but it's, you know, like a hundred or more Mm -hmm. clubs and societies. And you can find anything, you know, wine tasting, ballet, (laughs) chess, you name it. And also, you know, the the own, the biological sciences students have their own society. So that's a way for you to go and find like-minded people that have nothing to do with your lab. I really highly recommend that because it really keeps you sane and it gives you perspective on life. It allows you to set those boundaries of I'm doing something different that evening or on the weekend and to to really enjoy, you know, fun <laughs> just because. <laughs> Mariana, again, uh, so we, we reached the end of, of the interview. Uh, it, it's clear to me that, well, first, you love what you do, but also that you care for, for your students, that it, it shows. And um, uh, for me, it was a great pleasure. And I think you, in these last few minutes, you shared a lot of really, really great advice on how to navigate this experience of the PhD, which, like we mentioned, depending on where you are, but it's still a long you know, a large chunk of your life <laughs> that you're de- dedicating to this this one project. Uh, I, I really appreciate the, you know, the um, the care, the care that I that I felt uh, through through seeing you on the webcam, but but also talking with you. Uh, and um, now, my, the only thing that I would ask you is if someone who's listening would be interested in talking with you, uh, is there an easy way for them to reach out to you? Yes, so they can uh, email me. So my email, they can find it on my website. It's mvc1f11 at soton.ac.uk. And yeah, I would love to talk to anyone. Perfect. Mariana, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. And uh, again, I think this conversation has a a lot of food for thought and a lot of uh, inspiration uh, for for people who uh, who will be listening. So thank you. Thank you for having been so generous with your story and with your time. Thank you so much. All the best. And that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. And if you like the episode, if you like the show, there's different ways you can show your support. The easiest way? Share your favorite episode with a friend. And if you want to engage a little bit more, join the Papa PhD Patreon 
at papaphd.com forward slash Patreon. You'll be helping me with the recurring cost of producing the show, and you'll also be helping me bring to life the improvements I have in mind for the show. Again, thanks for being a listener. Happy listening, happy sharing, and see you next week. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to papaphd.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas, and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests. Music